Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, de-political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome, everyone, to the very first ever Odd Man Out Hidden History Half Hour. What I want to do with this is kind of give you guys something that you can go on and study yourselves. I want to give you enough information to get you kind of curious so you will continue the research. And a lot of the things I've been talking about lately are pretty serious issues. And if I go on about it for a whole hour by myself, I realize that it can get a little tedious. Not just for you, but for me as well. So I thought, why don't I start doing a half-hour show? maybe even two half-hour shows a week, depending. And I thank you for your patience. And so I'm just going to give this a go. It's kind of experimental, but I have been trying since I started this show to experiment around a little bit, see what people like, what they don't like, what I like and don't like, and what works for me. And so as my personal life is getting busier and busier, it makes it tough to get an hour-long show with all the editing. The editing is what takes so long, but So we'll see how this goes. Bear with me, my friends. Now, this week on the very first ever episode, I want to cover the subject of the Bank for International Settlements. Now, if you're not familiar with the BIS, well, you're probably familiar with the Federal Reserve and central banking, at least somewhat. And you may have read The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Or you may have read the great book on the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. Or End the Fed by Ron Paul. So you may be familiar with that history and how, well, the Federal Reserve is not really federal. And there probably aren't any reserves. And they have a lot of say in what goes on financially here in the United States. But it's not just here. So the Bank for International Settlements 
was created on May 17th, 1930. And it was created under the guise of it would be the conduit to handle the reparations of World War I that they imposed on Germany under the Treaty of Versailles. And that was why they founded the BIS. Now, the first guy who kind of gets credited with having the idea to do this, his name was Per Jacobson. He was eventually named the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. And he was a member of the Economic and Financial Section of the League of Nations. And one thing I noticed while investigating the Bank of International Settlements, there was quite a few people who were connected to the League of Nations and quite a few Council on Foreign Relations members, but we shouldn't be surprised about that. Next, we'll look into Charles G. Dawes. Now, Dawes, you've heard of the Dawes Committee and possibly the Dawes Plan, which I believe came about around 1923, named after him, of course, and it was originally a plan to implement reparations, but it didn't really pan out like they wanted it to. Now, Charles G. Dawes was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he was actually a board member, so he was pretty darn important. Now, Owen D. Young was another man, and he was chair of General Electric, which was a huge deal up until just a couple decades ago even. Uh, he was also a CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, board member. Now, I'm not sure if I'll pronounce this fellow's name correctly. It's German. Now, he's a very important guy when thinking about the founding of the Bank for International Settlements. Hjalmar Schott, co-founder in 1918 of the German Democratic Party, and currency commissioner and president of the Reich Bank. Now, if you're not familiar with the Reich Bank, they basically funded the Nazis in the Third Reich, and they handled their economic transactions, if you will. Next, in the founders, we have Sir Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England for many years, and he was a partner of Brown, Shipley, and Company. Very important guy, and they go on and on about this fellow in this book that I'm reading, which, if you want to know the name of it, it is called The Shadowy History of the Secret Bank That Runs the World, Tower of Basil, or Basil. Adam Labor is the fellow's name. In 1929, the committee under Chairman Owen D. Young, the head of General Electric, and a member of the Dawes Committee proposed a plan that reduced the marks almost $29 billion, payable over 58 years. So that is the reparations again that Germany was supposed to pay out to these other countries after World War I. Their headquarters is based in Basel, Switzerland. And I believe it's an 18-story building, don't quote me on that, but it's an oddly shaped building. And the time that it was built, it was very futuristic looking, kind of stood out. And they called it the Tower of Basel, or Basel. Now, there are 18 exclusive members, and they're almost all central bankers. But the exclusive 18 are generally governors of central banks. Now, you've got chairmen of the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, Bank of China, Central Bank Governors of Canada, Sweden, Italy, France, and Brazil. 
they have a meeting that used to be known as the G10 Governors Meeting, but at some point they changed it to the EEC, Economic Consultative Committee. Now, this is a specialized meeting where they talk about global financial policies and international markets, and they prepare for the yearly global economy meeting, according to Labor, and decide its agenda. Now, that meeting covers 30 countries with 60 banks who are all members of the Bank of International Settlements. Ben Bernanke and Paul Volcker from the Federal Reserve, of course, were both members. Now, interestingly enough, the Swiss government, I think this is very important, because the Bank of International Settlements was formed under this Treaty of Versailles, which was various countries doing this and informing it together and writing the treaty, supposedly. Well, I think it was mostly probably England, but it is untouchable by the Swiss government. It sits downtown there in Basel, but it is off-limits to the local authorities. They have no power or jurisdiction over the Bank of International Settlements building or property because, like I said, it was founded by the treaty. Its laws are very similar to that of the United Nations and the International Monetary Fund, as well as diplomatic embassies. The government, police, and military would need permission of the bank to come inside and enter the buildings. It says, according to Labor, that the bank often communicates in code and their correspondence letters are also covered by the same protections to embassies, meaning they cannot be opened. The Bank of International Settlements is exempt from Swiss taxes. Even the lower level employees, they don't have to pay taxes on their salaries. They even get the diplomatic treatment as well because their bags cannot be searched by the Swiss government unless they are committing an outright crime. All bankers who travel there are immune to Swiss laws. I'm in this wild. We don't know anything about this bank. They don't talk about them on the news. They barely even talk about the Federal Reserve, and when they do, they would never tell you the truth about it. So I think this is something important that people need to understand and learn. This is our history. Around 600 staff come from over 50 countries during the year to work at the building. Its assets are not subject to civil claims under Swiss law and can never be seized. And the bank, their meetings about the global economy are not released in paper form or any other form. They are just not released to the public. They have secret meetings. No one can enter unless they say so. Their duties include, now this is what they say, this is their formal explanation of what they do. Their duties include managing the supply of money to national economies setting interest rates that's deciding the value of our savings and investments, and they decide this for the entire world. Uh, uh, Labor says that, according to The Economist magazine, globalist magazine, but they are quoted as saying, central bankers are now more powerful than politicians holding the destiny of the global economy in their hands. Labor says that, the Bank of International Settlements is the most important bank in the world and predates both the IMF and the World Bank. Now, we'll get to Schott and the Nazi connection here in a few minutes, but now I want to read a few things from Carol Quigley about the Bank of International Settlements from Tragedy and Hope. Of course, Quigley would be one to uh, talk about that because he talked about the Anglo-American establishment and the banking families and the high financiers and all that stuff. Bear with me as I lug this humongous book around, this 
Tragedy in Hope book is humongous. So, according to Carol Quigley, this deal, he's talking about the Young Plan at the Treaty of Versailles, was named after the American Owen D. Young, a Morgan agent, who served as chairman of the committee, which drew up the new agreements on February to June 1929. Twenty governments signed these agreements in January 1930. The agreement with Germany provided for reparations to be paid for 59 years at rates rising from 1.7 billion marks in 1931 to a peak of 2.4 billion marks in 1966, and then declining to less than a billion marks in 1988. The earmarked sources of funds in Germany were abolished except for 660 million marks a year, which could be commercialized, and all protection of Germany's foreign exchange position was ended by placing the responsibility for transferring reparations from marks to foreign currencies squarely on Germany. To assist in this task, a new private bank called the Bank for International Settlements was established in Switzerland at Basel. Owned by the chiefs of central banks of the world and holding accounts for each one of them, the Bank for International Settlements was to serve as a central banker's bank and allow international payments to be made by merely shifting credits from one country's account to another on the books of the banks. Now, a couple of pages over, he says, As a result of all these factors, the system of international payments, which had worked so beautifully before 1914, worked only haltingly after that date and practically ceased to work at all after 1930. The chief cause of these factors was neither goods nor money obeyed purely economic forces and did not move as formerly to the areas in which each most was valuable. The chief result was a complete misdistribution of gold, a condition which became acute after 1928 and which by 1933 had forced most of the countries off the gold standard. Modifications of productive and commercial organization and of financial practices made it almost impossible after 1919 to restore the financial system of 1914. Yet this was what was attempted. Instead of seeking to set up a new financial organization adapted to the modified economic organization, bankers and politicians insisted that old pre-war systems should be restored. These efforts were concentrated in a determination to restore the gold standard as it had existed in 1914. In addition to these pragmatic goals, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the whole world. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. Now here it brings in the Bank of International Settlements. The apex of this system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank, in the hands of men like Montague Norman of the Bank of England, Benjamin Strong of the New York Federal Reserve, Charles Rist of the Bank of France, and Hjalmar Schott of Reichsbank. They sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, 
and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards in the business world. The BIS, as a private institution, was owned by the seven chief central banks and was operated by the heads of these, who together formed its governing board. Each of these kept a substantial deposit at the BIS and periodically settled payments among themselves and thus between the major countries of the world by bookkeeping in order to avoid shipments of gold. They made agreements on all the major financial problems of the world, as well as on many of the economic and political problems, especially in references to loans, payments, and economic futures of chief areas of the globe. The BIS is generally regarded as the apex of the structure of financial capitalism, whose remote origins go back to the creation of the Bank of England in 1694 and the Bank of France in 1803. As a matter of fact, its establishment in 1929 was rather an indication that the centralized world's financial system of 1914 was in decline. It was set up rather to remedy the decline of London as the world's financial center by providing a mechanism by which a world with three chief financial centers in London, New York, and Paris could still operate as one. The BIS was a vain effort to cope with the problems arising from the growth of a number of centers. It was intended to be the world cartel of ever-growing national financial powers by assembling the nominal heads of these national financial centers. Now, we mentioned Montague Norman being very important and the head of the Bank of England for a long time. Quigley quickly mentions, he says, the commander-in-chief of the world system of banking control was Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England, who was built up by private bankers to a position where he was regarded as an oracle in all matters of government and business. He also calls him a currency dictator. Now we get back to Hjalmar Schott. Co-founder Schott was known as the genius behind Nazi finance during World War II. He became the de facto arm of the Reichsbank in Germany, accepting looted Nazi gold and carrying out foreign exchange deals for Nazi Germany. The bank's ties with Berlin, a.k.a. the Nazis, was full well known in Washington, D.C. and London. And he says in this book, Labor, so many soldiers were fighting and dying in World War II, and just a few miles over in Switzerland, it was business as usual for the Bank of International Settlements. They didn't bat an eye. He says the assistant general manager, Paul Hetchler, of the Bank of International Settlements, was in the Nazi party and even signed his letters as Heil Hitler. After 1945, five Bank of International Settlements directors were charged with war crimes from World War II and their collusion with Nazis. Now, if you know anything about the Council on Foreign Relations, the way the OSS and CIA was set up, and just Nazi rat lines and stuff like that, then you know the Dulles Brothers. So, of course, the Dulles Brothers would play a part in the Bank of International Settlements. In 1930, Alan Dulles, CFR Director, CIA Chief, lawyer for Sullivan and Cromwell, picked Leon Frazier a director of the Council on Foreign Relations, to be president of the newly established Bank for International Settlements. His uncle was Robert Lansing, and his grandfather was John W. Foster, 
Both had been secretaries of state. Yeah, keep it in the family, guys, and that still goes on to this day. It's all about those bloodlines, but people don't want to think about that because apparently it's just too heavy for them. In 1937, he became the president of the First National Bank of New York. He also held senior positions at General Electric, U.S. Steel, and the Federal Reserve of New York. Now, after that, in the courtyard of his Granville home, Frazier went out in the back and shot himself in the head. So at least he did have a conscience. Now, Alan Dulles' brother John Foster Dulles went on to become U.S. Secretary of State for Eisenhower in the 50s. Of course, I said before, both brothers are famous for assisting Nazis in escaping after World War II, as among other things they're famous for. The Federal Reserve was not permitted to own shares in the Bank of International Settlements in the beginning, so J.P. Morgan, who started the Council on Foreign Relations, and the First National Bank of New York, and the First National Bank of Chicago joined on behalf of the United States. By the end of 1930, 13,000 people had applied for jobs at the Bank for International Settlements, and many were lawyers or economists who had previously been employed by the League of Nations. In fact, Carl Melchior became a vice president of the Bank of International Settlements, and he was a former chairman of finance on the committee of the League of Nations. So they wanted to create this world governance with them in charge, of course, but they couldn't get it passed in America. So what did they do? They started this Bank of International Settlements, probably knowing that eventually the UN was going to be formed as well. And so if you control the finance, you pretty much control everything. And John J. McCloy was another former chairman of the CFR and a chairman of Chase Manhattan. And he used his position as coordinator of the information for the U.S. government to build a kind of network. And he called that the OSS. And it was headed up by Wild Bill Donovan. Now, Thomas Lamont, another CFR guy, if I'm not mistaken, worked for J.P. Morgan. He was the senior partner at J.P. Morgan and one of the BIS's founding banks, right? A veteran of the reparations negotiations and naturally a friend of John Foster Dulles. Lamont had represented the U.S. Treasury at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 and later sat on the Young Plan Committee. Like Chase National Bank, J.P. Morgan encouraged its French subsidiary known as Morgan & C. to continue trading with the Nazis. According to declassified documents, as the Germans advanced on Paris, the French authorities ordered Morgan & C. to liquidate their accounts and destroy their stocks of banknotes. Morgan & C. ignored the order, and instead, like Chase National, the bank opened up a new office in Vichy, France, at Chatel Guyon, to serve its Nazi clients. A Treasury investigation reported that the primary loyalty of the Morgan partners was not to the U.S. or France, but to the firm. Regardless of national considerations, they invariably acted in what they deemed to be the best interests of Morgan & C. Morgan & C. even gained permission to handle payments from German accounts to the European subsidiaries of American firms that were building military equipment for the Third Reich, such as General Motors. Now, interestingly enough, the BIS had four American presidents and one 
Thomas McKittrick knew full well during World War II that they were helping to finance the Nazis. In fact, he met regularly with the president of the Reichsbank. So Thomas McKittrick was the third president of the BIS after Gates McGarrah and Leon Frazier. And the American Connection had helped shape the BIS since its foundation in 1930. The bank had set up to administer the Young Plan for the German reparations, as we talked about earlier, but it became something else altogether. It was essentially the trustee for the loans Germany took out from Wall Street to meet those obligations. The bank's American president stood at the center of the network of connections between Wall Street and American industries and Nazi Germany. Now, Standard Oil, owned by the Rockefellers, had formed a cartel with IG Farben, who was one of the biggest companies in Germany. And IG Farben, whose CEO, Hermann Schmitz, sat on the board of the Bank of International Settlements. The French subsidiary of J.P. Morgan, a founding member of the BIS, traded profitably with the Nazis after the invasion of France. ITT had gone into partnership with Kurt von Schroeder, the powerful Nazi banker who was a director of the BIS. Labour says, for the new class of transnational financiers, war was merely an interruption in commerce, albeit a highly profitable one. Both McKittrick and his guests were already planning on how to maximize their profits in the post-war era. Meanwhile, the money channels had been kept open during the war, and they ran right through Basel. McKittrick embodied the American Nazi financial network, which is why dozens of the United States' richest and most powerful businessmen and industrialists gathered in New York to praise McKittrick when he came to visit them. McKittrick, the president of the BIS, met often with the Reichsbank president, Emil Pohl. So basically, all through World War II, the Nazis were sending gold to the BIS, and the BIS didn't have a place to hold gold, because they were just about paper monies, so they actually sent it to the Bank of Switzerland to hold for them. Now, one thing I didn't know was they said in here that John Maynard Keynes, the famous liberal economist, was buddies with John Foster Dulles. So that just kind of makes sense, because those 20th century, early 20th century progressives, they were peas in a pod. They loved money. They were more akin to, I would say, Fabian socialists than free market capitalists. Now, we'll finish up here, but one lesson that we've learned, and I knew some of this, but I wasn't sure about all of it, is IG Farben, they had subsidiaries in New York. They had their own concentration camps. And so they were partnered up in a cabal with Standard Oil, the Rockefellers, of course, and they were helping each other. And they were providing materials to the Nazis, as well as Chevrolet providing vehicles to the Nazis and Ford providing vehicles to the Nazis, ITT, IBM, all these companies. And these people like Allen and John Foster Dulles and McKittrick and a lot of these Americans and even the people that were in charge of the Bank of England, even though... Yes, the Nazis were supposed to be our enemies and England's mortal enemies. They were doing business with them. And they made sure that these lines of financial communication and financial transactions 
were kept open during World War II. So to hell with the people, to hell with the soldiers fighting these wars. They were planning on all the money they were going to make rebuilding Germany after they destroyed it. And notice that certain certain plants there didn't get destroyed, like VW and like the Ford factory and different ones. So, you know, it's the same old, same old thing. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And so as I'm ending this, I just want you to do your own research. Look up the OSS Harvard plan. And you'll understand that people like the Harrimans were also in on this, planning on how they could make a lot of money. And it's just the same kind of things that we're seeing, I think, in more modern wars since then. It's not really about the enemies, the threats the enemies pose to the people and the borders and their constitutions. But it's what these very, very powerful men in Wall Street, financing, corporatism, what they want to get done to benefit them down the road. So we had no idea that there was even such a thing as the Bank for International Settlements. And now we know that they are the bank, still in business to this day for sure, for all the other central banks. And so you will not hear this on any conservative mainstream show at all, and probably not even on most libertarian shows, and you sure as hell won't hear anything about it probably on any liberal show. So that is the very first Odd Man Out's Hidden History Half Hour. I love you guys. Take care. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See ya.